We're going to look at the book of Habakkuk this morning, so I'll go ahead and, and give you fair warning and let you go ahead and turn over there. Habakkuk, uh, obviously it's in the Old Testament. If you've been following along with our minor prophets, he follows just behind Nahum, where we were last week. And if you get to Zephaniah or any book that starts with Z, you've gone too far. Start backing up from there. But I want to begin, as you are flipping there, with a passage not from Habakkuk, but with a passage from Romans chapter 8. And it says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That may be a verse that many of you have memorized, either in this translation or in another, and that has meant a lot to you through the years as you've struggled through difficult circumstances. Because what we understand is this verse does not mean that we will never have problems and that everything that happens in our lives will be good to us. It doesn't mean that. As a matter of fact, when we open our eyes and we look around at the world in which we live in, we see that there's a lot of stuff that's not good. In preparation for this message, I took just a little while to go through the news wires, and I pulled out five articles that I read, and to be quite honestly, couldn't get through one of them without weeping. Let me share with you the highlights of those five articles. Salvador Acevedo, age 45, and his girlfriend Iris Aseguera, age 33, were allegedly arguing in their car. Acevedo pulled out a gun and shot her, their twin six-year-olds, and then shot himself in front of three of her other children who were in the car with her. All four died from the gunshot wounds. In Iron City, Florida, with a population of only 321, what can possibly happen in a town that small? Three people died in a shooting last weekend. Larry Easterwood has been charged with the crime of shooting and killing Christy Scott and her husband, Rodney Scott, along with his ex-girlfriend, Stacy Dismuke, with the Scott's young children sitting right there in the car. A Smyrna, Tennessee woman has been arrested in Chattanooga. After police say she tried to suffocate her four-year-old son in Oxford, Michigan, a 20-year-old woman who's only five feet tall was beaten nearly to death with a baseball bat by her father. When you read things like that and you confront the reality of evil that exists in our world, we know that we have a good God who has a plan, who is sovereign, and yet it disturbs us as we try to consider our good God in light of the evil that exists in our world. We're not the first people who've been disturbed by that. Habakkuk was one of those. And before we consider his words this morning, Let me share with you just a little bit about who the man was. We don't know a lot about him, but we can glean a few things from his life that helps us to understand him. These are real people speaking. These these are not just something that's made up like, like Dr. Seuss. These are real people who had real lives, who faced real issues. Habakkuk was a real man. We can, we can know of Habakkuk or, or pretty well feel confident that Habakkuk was a priest. And the reason we can know that, if you flip all the way to the, to the last verse of Habakkuk, there's a little note that's written down there that says, For the director of music on my stringed instruments. 
One of the roles of, of priests in that time, they didn't all do the same thing. There were priests who were given responsibility over the music in the temple. It appears that Habakkuk perhaps was one of those who was assigned with writing new songs to be sung in the temple. And at least a portion of this prophecy he intended to be put into song. From that, if we, if we gather correctly that he is a priest, then we might well assume that he is from Judah. The second good bit of information is that he could not have been from the northern nation of Israel because it was already destroyed. And so we can feel very confident that he was from Judah and Jerusalem. His prophetic message was delivered sometime between 640 and 609 B.C. What's key to this time was this is a portion of the time when King Josiah ruled in Jerusalem. For some of you, that already rings a bell. For others, you're going, okay. King Josiah was one of the few good kings in the latter stages of, of uh, Judah. And he, crea- he had many reforms. He, he, he brought back, he, he rekindled temp- the, the worship in the temple and, and, and rekindled the hunger for the word of God. And, and he, he did away with a lot of the, the false religions that were out there, or at least tried to tamp those down. And so he did some good things. But... A king can't fix it all. Just like the election of a president in 2012 won't fix it all. There was still plenty of evil, plenty of treachery, plenty of scheming, plenty of injustices that were going on in the kingdom at that time. Now probably the most interesting thing about Habakkuk, it's a very unusual name, but his name means to embrace His name was a part of his prophecy. Because in the active sense, it means to embrace or to hold on to. In the passive sense, it means to be embraced or to be held on to. And what we will find out is part of the message of Habakkuk is, in the midst Jerusalem, in the midst Judah of all that you are going through, you need to understand that God is still holding on to you. And you need to hold on to him. His name was part of his message. When you read through Habakkuk, and I hope that you will. It's only three chapters. It won't take that long. When you read through Habakkuk, you will see that he too wrestled with the issue of evil in the face of a good God. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to look with me in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. We'll put the words up here on the screen. Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict that abound. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked, him in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. I bet you thought that only happened in our time. Habakkuk himself dealt with the same issue and, and went to God and said, God, as I, as I take a look around, there's some good things happening. But as I take a look around, God, I see violence. I see injustice. I see destruction. I see strife. I see conflict abounding. 
It seems that the wicked always win over the righteous. And the unjust always win over the just. God, how can you let this happen? How long will you let it go on? God, we've prayed, we've cried, we've wept. But it seems that evil still prevails. Now, somewhat like the book of Job, God answers Habakkuk, but almost almost like in the book of Job, it's not always the answer that the, the prophet is looking for. Let's look at a part of his answer. In verses 5 and 6, God says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. At this point, Habakkuk would say, beep, beep, back up the bus. That's not what I meant. Habakkuk was looking at the evil in his generation and saying, God, when are you going to do something about it? And God said, I've got a plan for that. I'm raising up the Babylonians to come and to execute judgment right here in Judah and Jerusalem. And Habakkuk goes, that's not exactly what I meant. That... It created an additional dilemma for him because, you see, the Babylonians weren't good people. And so God was raising up a worse people to come and execute his discipline, his judgment, on people who were marginally better. Now, we're not going to read through the entire thing, but I want to give you a flavor for the book because in chapter 2, It's a description of the judgment and the destruction of Babylon. In other words, God was going to raise up Babylon for this task, but don't worry, Habakkuk. They're not getting away with it. They're going to get their just due. God will not overlook evil. He's not going to overlook it in Jerusalem. He's not going to overlook it in Babylon. But Habakkuk, through it all, remember. God is holding on to his people. You need to hold on to him. Chapter 3 then is an interesting conclusion to this. Because you see Habakkuk doesn't get the answer he wants. When I read through those articles. And I asked God how can this happen? How can a father beat his daughter with a baseball bat nearly to death? How can a mother attempt to suffocate her four-year-old son? And folks, you don't have to look through the newspaper or search on news sites to find these kind of things. You know about them, don't you? You hear about them all the time. And we look at this and we say, God, how can this happen? And God doesn't always give us the answer we want. Sometimes he brings perfect clarity to us, but at other times we're left with a mystery. And in Habakkuk's case, in chapter 3, 
He creates a song of praise and worship, acknowledging the power and the faithfulness of God. Now, we don't know what happened to trip the switch. We don't know exactly what happened in his life where he said this, and this is a point we all have to come to. God, I do not understand what's going on. I do not understand why this happened. I do not understand why this evil exists. I do not understand why all the unfairness exists, and especially why it was pointed my way. I don't understand it all, but in the midst of it, God, In the midst of it, I believe that you are good, that you have a plan, and that your plan will prevail. God, I hold fastly to that even when the whole world around me is a whirlwind. When the floodwaters are rising, God, I'm holding fast that you are a good God, a God with a plan, a God in control. When my family's falling apart, I am holding fast, God, to the fact that you are good. You have a plan. You're in control. When my checkbook is empty and I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills, God, I am holding fast. It doesn't change the fact that you are good. You have a plan. You're in control. At some point, Habakkuk had to take that step. It's a step that you and I, at some point in our lives, have to take as well. Can I trust God even when I cannot understand why he causes or allows certain things to happen? Can I still cling to him when life is unfair? Habakkuk's conclusion. Habakkuk's conclusion is one of these sections of Scripture that you need to highlight, underline, write on index cards and tack up to your bathroom mirror and attempt to memorize even with your feeble mind. And I know some of you said, I can't memorize Scripture. My mind just doesn't do that. This is one of those things. If you just have to have a tattoo, and I'm not endorsing it, but go ahead and get this one. Chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. This is Habakkuk's conclusion. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will, I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on to the heights. When everything is going wrong, still, I'm going to cling to the Lord. Now I realize this is a lot easier to say when things are going well. When you're well fed and there's food in the cabinets and the rent's been paid and the roof's not leaking and the car's working and you got a little money in the bank, at that time, it's a little easier to praise the Lord. It's a little easier to be thankful. It's a little easier to hold on to God. But 
But what about when things don't go wrong? You see, here's the deal. Habakkuk was not in that, that time where everything was just going, you know, gangbusters. Everything was just going great. And I look out in the world, it's just super. No. As a matter of fact, when he looked on the world, this is what he said. Right before those verses we just read, verse 16 of chapter 3. I heard, God, I heard what you said, and my heart pounded, and my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. God, when I heard, when you told me what was going to happen to us as a people, when, when you told me the price for our perpetual disobedience, it crushed me. And when you told me that it was going to be a wicked nation, far worse than we are, that was going to do this, I couldn't believe it. But he goes on to say, yet, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. You see, the Lord has shown that things are going to get worse before they got better. Things are going to get worse before they got better. But even in the midst of it, Habakkuk said, I'm going to hold on to the Lord. Now, Having said all that, I need to ask you, is that your statement of faith as well? Is that where you are in your life right now? Are you committed to God, committed to walk with him when things are going your way? Uh, or is your faithfulness to him, is that contingent upon him answering the prayers the way you want them answered? Delivering the goods the way you want them delivered. God, you know, I'll be faithful to you if there's money in the bank account. I'll be faithful to you if there are groceries in the refrigerator. I'll be faithful to you, God, when there's gas in the tank. I'll be faithful to you, God, when I've got clean clothes in the closet. I'll be faithful, God, to you when there's a roof over my head and, and there's food in my belly. But what if the car won't start and the roof's leaking and the check bounced and your stomach's growling? What then? Many people are looking for something else. They've been sold a bill of goods. Somehow they were told that when they became a Christian that everything in their life was going to work out just fine. That they weren't going to have problems. That they wouldn't get sick. That they'd have all the money that they needed. I'm sure the people that told them that were well-intentioned and probably well-dressed. But I never heard Jesus say that. And I never heard Paul say that. I did hear Jesus say that foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I did hear Paul say that I've learned the secret of being content whether I have a lot or have nothing. 
And I've heard my brothers and sisters say in third world countries, when they really didn't know where the next meal was coming from, that they were holding on to a faithful and good God. You see, one of the things that causes people to walk away from God is He's not delivering on their terms. Now, I want to take just a second to tell you there's a flip side to that record. For those of you who are over 40, you know what a record is and a flip side is. CDs don't have flip sides. Records, you used to be able to turn them on. There was a song on the other side. The flip side is this. Prosperity can do the same thing. We can have enough so that we don't feel like we need God. We've got it. We've got it covered. So each, each area has its dangers. Poverty, lack. We may walk away from God looking for a better deal. Prosperity, we may walk away from him thinking we've got it made. Maybe that's why Paul said, I've learned to be content whatever my circumstances, because it wasn't based on what he had or didn't have. It, ba- it was based on the God who held him and unto whom he held. And so this morning, having read this scripture, I want to call you to a consistency in your faithfulness. A consistency in your faithfulness requires a daily acknowledgement of your dependence upon God. You may have all the money you need. You may have enough stored up for your lifetime, for your children, and maybe some left over for your grandchildren. But if you don't wake up in daily dependence on God, you're going to walk askew. And if you who have little feel like it's all up to you, that you've got to do anything and everything it takes, that you are on your own, and you don't acknowledge your daily dependence upon the Lord for your daily bread, then you too will walk askew. But I'd like to share with you some things that I've found helpful in my life and others have found helpful in their lives that can help you develop a consistent and persistent lifestyle of faithfulness. No magic formula. Just some simple, practical things that I've learned. And the first one is this. Begin with a simple step of faith in Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. We begin with a simple step of faith in Jesus Christ, acknowledging that that God sent his son to die for us, to pay the price for our lives. And we Follow him. We believe in him and follow him as Savior and cling to him as Lord of our lives, giving, him compl- giving ourselves to him completely. That's where it begins. No faithful- Without that, there is no faithfulness. You can do all the good things in the world, but they end up being nothing without this step. Some of you may need to take this step of faith today. You may do it with fear and trembling, but you need to do this. This is your starting point. To begin to walk. 
You know what I'm talking about when we talk about the hardships of life. You know what I'm talking about when we talk about the evil that's in the world. And you're trying to figure out, how do I cope with all this? How do I remain faithful in all this? The way you begin is with a step of faith in Jesus Christ, clinging to him. Secondly, begin each day with a declaration of dependence on the Lord's wisdom, guidance, and power. God, I know You've got it figured out. I don't. I have no idea what's going to happen in the next 15 minutes, let alone what's going to happen in the next 15 hours. I just don't know. And so, God, I want to admit to you right now that I am dependent upon you for every tick of the clock, every beat of my heart, and every breath in my lungs this day. I'm dependent on you. I've got to take it one step at a time, one heartbeat at a time, one breath at a time, one moment at a time. God, I'm dependent on you on you. I believe with all my heart that's what happened to Habakkuk. He got to that point where he said, I don't understand it, but I am totally dependent on my God. Third, spend time daily in prayer and meditation on God's word. If you want to know what God wants for your life, if you want to know what God has for your life, the way you're going to find it is not by watching Oprah and Dr. Phil. I'm sorry, you're not going to find it in Cosmopolitan magazine. It's not there. The way you're going to find it is spending time with God. Opening up his word and saying, God, you know, I'm not the smartest. I'm not the brightest. But I believe that because you placed your Holy Spirit in me, that you can speak to me from this word. And God, I want to hear what you've got to say. And as best as I'm able, with your power, I want to put it into practice. Spend some time praying. Praying's not magical. Praying's not mystical. Let me tell you what praying is. Praying is just communicating with a God who desperately wants to hear from you. Going to him. Take, take two minutes. Take one minute. Go for a walk and just talk to God. Don't worry about what your neighbors think. I got an idea. You don't even have to take an iPod or anything like that. Just take the earbuds and stick them in. Put the thing in your pocket so they don't know you don't have anything in there. And just walk along talking to God. They'll think you're singing with the music. Whatever it takes to have that time with God. Fourth, freely share God's grace with others in words and deeds. As God begins to pour his grace into your life, pour his truth into your life, pour his wisdom into your life, you are not to be... You know, my grandmother used to do a lot of canning. We had, we had a garden. She'd can this stuff. She'd pop the lid on real tight, so much so that when, it, when we got ready to open the preserves or got ready to open the green beans, it was hard to pull that seal apart. And sometimes in our Christian lives, we start packing all this stuff that God's putting in our lives, and then we seal it up real tight. But I got to tell you, that's not God's design. That's not God's plan. God's plan is for you to be like a bucket with holes in it. And God keeps pouring into you, and you just keep pouring out all around. That's God's plan for you. You're a holy bucket. Well, now you've got the imagery, so you can go with it. Fifth, do not neglect worship, either in your personal life, nor with the community of faith. You know, when life gets busy and life gets hard, There are two things that we tend to jettison. One is our personal time with God. And secondly, is our time with God's people. That's deadly. 
That's like being on a ship that's being tossed about on the waves. You're going to be out there for days and you throw your fresh water overboard. You throw your food stores overboard. It makes no sense. And yet we jettison the very things that are necessary for our spiritual life. Six, connect with a small group of believers. We've got grace groups, a wonderful place to connect. Connect with a small group of believers who will grow with you, who will encourage you, and who will challenge you. Here's another area we jettison. Gosh, I'm just so busy. You know i got to work. And, and these groups, really, you know, none of, them are, none of them fit perfectly into my schedule. You know, the perfect grace group for my schedule will probably be 10 o'clock at night at my house after the kids have gone to bed. But I don't see one on the schedule. Let me encourage you, not as a pastor trying to increase numbers in grace groups, but as a pastor who wants you to experience what God has for you. If you are neglecting a small group of believers, if you're neglecting that fellowship, that encouragement, that accountability, that study time, if, you're, if you aren't doing that, then you are robbing yourself of what God has in store for you. Seventh, be determined. I know some of you are Yellow Jacket fans, but if you'll forgive me, we need the determination of a bulldog here. We need to hold on and not let go. And then finally, don't quit. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Don't quit. Don't stop. Persevere. Overcome. Having heard all this, I now put the ball squarely in your court. There is no formula to being faithful. But without a consistency and a persistence, there is no faithfulness. I can promise you this, though. That even though life will not be a bed of roses, and you will have more than your share of pain and heartache, and suffering, and injustice. Even though that's true, I promise you, you will find God to be faithful. You will find His grace to be sufficient. And you will find that His power is made perfect in your weakness.